welcome back to the Real Voices of the Game podcast, or Real Voices of the Game production, I should say. We are in one of our favorite shows. It's a performance show, The Hot Corner with Coach Sal, with our star of the show, Sal Marinella. I want to welcome our subscribers and listeners back. We're up to 11,500 subscribers. We want to thank you all. You can find us Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We'll respond back. Uh, and we're starting to write every day on our Facebook one. So enjoy our our question of the day every day on Facebook right now. And uh, continue to support Coach Sal here. He's done a great job with with performance training. Gives us a little bit of a little bit of insight into what his world is like. And it's far different than what our other podcasts are about because he takes a deep dive into what makes athletes great and people in general. So great show for us today, Sal. I got the the bullet points all set to go. And welcome back to your show. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. Another interesting week and plenty of stuff to talk about that will um, forward the uh, the ideas that we've put forth so far. Yeah. This being episode 118, I know you probably caught as you were, I know you went to go watch your, your son play lacrosse last week, but the, uh, I don't know if they were trying to take a look at my show notes, but the Chinese air balloon was shot down right over my house uh, pretty much. Wow. In, in, so made the house shake, the roof shake, all the neighborhoods. So they got it about 12 miles into the ocean. So uh, Coach and Kern, or our, I'm sorry, Real Voices of the Game Productions catching on, I maybe, think. Uh, yeah, maybe they want to see how you do what you do, and they're going to steal your ideas. Well, we, we do have uh, a ton of subscribers in China, believe it or not. So we'll, maybe they're they're coming over here to think we did a live show. Who knows? But uh, yeah. you, you hit on our last show. We uh, talked a lot about competence and confidence. I know we hit on the physical realm. Uh, you wanted to stay there a little bit, but get get into a little something deeper today with that concept, I think, right? Yeah, well, you know, it's worked out nicely that, you know, I recommended a couple of books, the the book specifically, The Story of the Human Body, and it fit nicely into this philosophy or this theory, however you want to refer to the phrase, you build uh, competency, I'm sorry, you build confidence by building competency, and what we're what we're in is an era where we have false competency and it puts us into this false confidence. And we talked about in, in specifically in how it affects our athletes, and I think it affects many people in the general population. Yeah. And yeah, and we could now in the book the his, uh, the story of the human body, the author Daniel Lieberman talks about we have these mismatched diseases and the best example of that is type two diabetes where the environment has brought on this quote disease. And what we're doing, we're in the, we've been in the midst of treating the symptoms of this disease and not the root cause, despite the fact we know with certainty what the root cause is. And, you know, you can compare it to cancer and, you know, many cancers could be considered this mismatched disease with, with being the idea the environment is responsible for these cancers. But the big difference is we still don't know specifically what it is in the environment that's responsible for many of these cancers. With type 2 diabetes, we know precisely what the problem is, and it's too much food, too many calories, too much energy. Um, and we're in this state, Dave, where we're treating the symptoms and we're not treating the root causes. And we're passing this disease onto our future generation. Yeah. I think uh, kind of hitting on the, the cancer point, obviously we, we all have people that have been touched by it, but 
I think there's a lot of money to be made out there with the confusion of what causes things sometimes. And uh, also with the things being passed on from generation to generation. When you talk about symptoms that they're addressing symptoms, give our audience some examples of some of the symptoms they're trying to treat that really isn't the answer. Well, I mean, the, um, the example, let's use type 2 diabetes and obesity uh, and how basically obesity is a symptom of type 2 diabetes. So what we're doing now is treating two symptoms with drugs. You have this drug Ozempic and the other drug Wagovi, which now are in short supply for diabetics because they're being given to people that uh, want to lose weight. And, you know, there's some debate as to what percentage of this um, this misdirection of these drugs are going to people who are in the vanity category, you know, what I would consider people who need to lose 15 or 20 pounds or even 10 pounds versus people who are what now is clinically considered obese. You know, obesity is now considered a disease. We have another disease, and yet we consistently have shown through research we can eliminate the disease. We can eliminate both obesity and type 2 diabetes by having people eat better and losing weight. And what we've done is develop drugs that are designed to address these symptoms, not handle the root cause. As far as eating, uh, describe to our audience a little bit about I know we, we've, we've chatted briefly about it before and we touch on it every time. You can't, you can't outwork a bad diet. What are some thoughts on your part as far as how they should eat? Well, we have a, we're, we're you know, the, I like the term excess energy um, because when you look at how our bodies have evolved, and that's why the book, The Story of the Human Body is so great, um, that it puts that, these things in that kind of a context. We are not built to have this um, luxury, this excess of calories, this excess of energy. Our ancestors didn't live that way. So our bodies are built in such a way that, you know, we're not really good in these circumstances. We're not built for these circumstances where food is plentiful, where energy is plentiful. So we have all these foods that we eat. And on top of the fact that we have plentiful food, we have food that is bad for you and high in calorie, high in sugar, highly processed that is adding to this problem, this burden, because it creates the other problem of the insulin sensitivity that our body, the body goes through when it's constantly bombarded with this sugar and excess calories. So when when the individuals that are obese and develop type 2 diabetes, when they're given the drug, does it and I'm guessing the answer is yes, so it may be a loaded question, but I guess how is it better? How does it hinder their abilities to get back to a normal life where they could not have to take a drug and could rely on just a proper diet? Well, again, it, it, it gives you the, the false, it's the false confidence that this drug is going to solve or fix your problem. You know, you look at the numbers of what the weight loss numbers are on these drugs and you know, it's certainly not nothing that couldn't come from eating better. It's actually not even as good as being better with your diet. The numbers aren't aren't better. There, if you get somebody who really is concerned with their health and wants to get better, they're going to accomplish more from cutting back on the high processed food, from cutting back on sugar, uh, cutting back on over consuming, and just getting on a, a basic 
activity-based exercise program. You know, you're not talking about going out and running marathons and, and riding in the Tour de France and becoming a bodybuilder. You know, the biggest difference in longevity is not between the couch potato and the person that is the over-exerciser or the, you know, real involved crossfitter, marathon runner, cyclist. The, the biggest difference is between the couch potato and the group of people who do the least amount of productive work, which is basically going for a walk a few times a week. Yeah, I, I you know, and, and you could touch on this. So you answered the question or touched on the question I was going to ask about adding movement to a diet. Um, people my age, our age, I guess I say I'm 49. Um, I notice that they struggle with mobility with their shoulder. So just simple shoulder extensions with their piriformis with their transverse abdominis that's straightening uh with their achilles see how you, you've educated me sal and all this stuff their their knees um things like that i noticed just a lack of flexibility a lack of strength in those areas i mean is it as simple as just moving those areas or what are some thoughts you have with mobility opportunities yeah, i mean it's it's going for walks it's the old school calisthenics that people of our generation especially my generation grew up on if you could go and find some YouTube videos of Jack LaLanne. My mom, I grew up in an apartment in Queens, New York, uh, for the first 10 years of my life. My mom, I remembered watching her do Jack LaLanne videos. They weren't videos. It was actually a TV show. Those are things that I grew up with both in that setting and then going to school and having a great phys ed department at the school I grew up in when we moved to New Jersey and calisthenics were a huge part of what we did. And they're still a huge part of what I do with both my high level athletes and my everyday person that comes to see me just to get better. Now, one of my favorite points that you made, and this was 115 episodes ago, but our phys ed programs are being depleted right now. And at one point in time, they were rooted in military or vice versa, correct? That was the... Well, yeah, the military, the, the, the military requirements kind of set the tone for what was phys ed in our curriculum. And as the general population started to lose some function, it was reflected in the changes in the military, which filtered down into phys ed. And it was a slow but inexorable or inexorable journey to dumbing down our phys ed curriculum. So the best example was the old school snipers used to get in a deep squat position. We posted that picture. Yeah. So a deep squat, picture yourself feet flat on the ground, squatting so your butt is in touch with your calves, like inches from the ground. And that's what the sniper position was. And as we got less fit, and that could be from industrialization. We could have that discussion. <clears throat> Excuse me, too much sitting. Uh, they moved to the prone position where you're lying on your stomach to shoot because people could not hold that squat position anymore. So this has been going on. And now if you look at what's going on at the academies, I've had several young athletes I've worked with, several young students I've worked with uh, and prepared them for the West Point Air Force and Navy admissions, uh, the physical part of the admissions test, it's gotten a lot easier and it's gotten easier once you're in 
the academies and once you're in the military. There was a big article years ago about they can't get women to do push-up, uh, pull-ups, excuse me, pull-ups. And that's just laziness because I've done it with a team of 15 Division One women's basketball players who could not. I had a team where one person could do a couple of pull-ups, not one other member of that team could do pull-ups. And then in the course of an eight-week period, we got to the point where they could do a bent arm hang, which is basically you're up at the bar holding your chin over the bar for 30 seconds. And then where we had more than half of those young women able to do pull-ups. And, and as we moved through the season, we had a higher number of those women do pull-ups. So was that, that was kind of the sequence you went through with the other things that you added? Cause that is a big, I went through the, I actually signed at West Point out of high school. So I went through that, that uh, rigorous physical admissions process and I uh, know exactly what you mean. Was was that the sequence you used to help these these young women do the chin ups? Because I know, I mean, anybody I talk to, that's you don't see people do that at all in the weight room anymore. The the problem with the pull ups, it's just like the push ups. They're hard to do, and if you can't do them for whatever reason, a lot of people don't know how to get the body and how to get the person, both mentally and physically, in the position to do that. And I mean, just beyond the physical position. But mentally, and there is a progression to do, and we've talked a little bit about it on the show, but I never see people do that. I just see people struggle or just not do pull-ups at all. And I've gotten people of all stripes uh, able to do pull-ups. So uh, it's just knowing how to how to get it done. So, you know, so we've, we've now, let's go back to the, con- the, per- the point of we have this f- false competency. Oh, well, and this false competence. We've had to adjust things away from real competency, which in, in my book is being able to do X amount of push-ups and X amount of pull-ups, regardless male or female. And now they've come up with other things to do, but that's not real competence. So we don't have, you know, we have this false competency and we have a false confidence. Is that uh, performances version of the, and I wrote about this this morning on Facebook, the, the third place ring in the bronze division at a, a local travel ball tournament where they lower the expectations so much that um, we think we're winning basically. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's even, it's, it's not that bad because if you're still having, you still have three legitimate teams and you're playing, I don't have a problem with that. It's calling a team elite when really it's just a travel team. That's, yeah. that's probably closer to what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. No, that, that makes, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I, now did you ever get those young women, all of them to be able to do regular pull-ups? We got them all to be able to do the bent arm hang at 30 seconds, which is the minimum. I believe it was 20 seconds at West point, but I felt that, uh, anybody, any athlete that is having their education paid for and is, is playing a division one sport, is an elite athlete and and any elite athlete should be able to do either pull-ups or that bent arm hang. So I increased that minimum from 20 seconds to the 30 seconds and we got everybody to do it. Good. My favorite exercise, one of them. I love the jump rope. I love the pull-up and I love the push-up. I think those are my other favorites, the Jefferson curl. Um, I had to pick four. That's what I'd do every day if I could. Well, uh, do you want to move into the injury? You want to talk about injury and recovery and mitigation? Yeah, and I think so. What we have is, is is the similar environment where we have this, again, what's the competency they're judging you on, in, in, especially in, in 
recovery from some of these major injuries, I have a, a buddy of mine who is a PT who does performance training. So he has both sides of the street covered. He is uh, educated and worked as a physical therapist and now does performance training. And he sees what these athletes are doing in their rehab. Uh, he had an athlete that all they were con- post ACL volleyball athlete, all they were concerned with was the size of her leg, the circumference of her thigh without regard for performance. And it was to the point where they were, I think, I believe it was either a half or a quarter of an inch off, which is ridiculous. <clears throat> Excuse me, because no one's symmetrical. We don't, we're not symmetrical. So that one side is going to be exactly the same as the other. And so again, we that's a great example again of a false definition of competency, which is giving that athlete a false sense of confidence that they are actually recovered. Why would they choose that? I mean, I'm, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't know, Dave. I, I mean, I can't tell you again, my friend, Ron, who works in the field, he has no idea. So they're being taught this at some level and it's being uh, institutionalized, if that's the proper yeah. uh, use of the word, so that just future generations are now using that as the definition, just like Future generations are now going to say, well, I don't have to eat better. I just have to take this pill or this injection and I'll be healthier and I'll lose weight. And and to go back to that, I don't want to forget about the injury, but they're now coming out with the studies that are saying these drugs don't tackle the root cause. And they know they don't. I mean, it's it's silly that they have to have a study that says these diabetes drugs do not tackle the root cause of obesity. Because the root cause of obesity has nothing to do with an interaction of your of a drug or some other internal system, uh, some in, internal function of our systems, like cancer. We know what how co- cancer is caused, but we don't know exactly why and how to prevent it. In all these cases, we know that to stop the obesity problem, to not be a type two diabetic, you need to go on a diet where you minimize certain types of food. Don't overeat and engage in some kind of athlete, uh, uh, activity. So it, it's across the board we're seeing this. I'm sure you know you could talk to the educational aspects of it, being that your kids are of that age and you see what you are teaching them versus what the school systems want to teach them. Again, that's a false um, uh, definition of competency that they're teaching in many of these schools that parents want to pull back and they want to teach them what they feel is their uh, their definition of competency, which in many cases, the parents write. Yeah, no, it's, boy, yeah, that, that you, you touch a topic with that with me. It's, it's, a, it's similar in that it sounds like, as you're describing what's going on in the medical field there with the knee injury and with obesity, um, a lot of those, there's a lot of money to be made in indoctrination and unfairness and confusion. And I think anytime there's questions asked that prevent that from happening. They get, they get squashed as we see. So is, is when you talk about diabetes, obesity, is any of that hereditary? And I don't, I don't know. I'm asking a, a, a legit question on my part. We hear it say it's hereditary, but as you're describing it, it could be hereditary, but based on following, you know, monkey see, monkey do, following yeah, the yeah. Of people you see. Yeah, it's, it's cultural. It's a cultural heredity. It's more of a zip code instead of a, instead of a genetic code. Basically. Yeah, it's 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 our environment has been this environment has been created 
where, and, and I see, I'm not being judgmental, but how can you not see it? I go and I enjoy my coffee, uh, my afternoon coffee many times a week. I'll go to one of the two major chains and indulge myself. One of the three places I go. And you can't help but notice the overweight family with the ridiculous drink with whipped cream and tons of sugar. When you see, and it, and I like it, so I'm going to, you know, I'm not perfect here. And you don't have to be a teetotaler or a sugar totaler, but I enjoy some of the Starbucks uh, iced coffees. And some of them have like eight pumps of a syrup in it, which is an astronomical amount. If any of you out there like those kinds of drinks, find out from your barista or whoever makes your coffee how many pumps of their syrup they put. You'd be mortified. So it's enough for me to know that because it keeps me on the straight and narrow. I'll have one or two a week because that's not going to kill me because I know most of what I do during the week is okay and everyone has to have their indulgence. But those are the things that you just see constantly. And it's the, look at the lines at the fast food restaurants. Look at the lines of people at, you know, I love Chick-fil-A too. When I've had it on occasion, I have two within 15 minutes from me that have constant lines around the parking lot that they have people outside taking orders by hand in addition to the drive-through menu. So it's look three at, lanes deep. I mean, they've got side by side by side. And watch, look at people's carts in the supermarket or at Costco, and you're not seeing healthy food. You're seeing what people think are healthy food, like these energy bars that are mostly processed sugar that are made with high fructose corn syrup. People think that all of these whole grains are healthy. They're really not. Many people have a hard time digesting them, and it leads to a whole series of other problems that. Again, once in a while, any of these things aren't a problem to eat, but when they make up your diet, a huge problem. There was an, I, I haven't had a chance to fully read the article because it just came out, but Tufts, Tufts University, which is one of the top universities in the country, has come out with a new, uh, I forget what they call it. It's not a food pyramid, but it basically is their version of a food pyramid. They've been captured by the people who put that together have been captured by the food industry. They basically said that eating Cheerios and Fruit Loops is better than eating eggs, which is just flat out ludicrous. And yet they're telling you that with the straight face, despite the fact that is that it is public knowledge that big food is bought and has bought and sold these guys and girls, these men and women who are involved with producing this new food model yeah just like the old one right they uh it's it's part of that indoctrination we talk about just for our audience to spell that myth for us about eggs please oh you know it's 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 really embarrassing I, I tweeted the other day 30 years after the fact that we know a eating cholesterol doesn't raise your cholesterol level and b cholesterol well we've known for longer than 30 years that cholesterol is vital for our survival that they're still reporting Oh, eggs are healthy despite the cholesterol content. Well, it's an amazing amount of ignorance or adherence to some ridiculous agenda, which we can really go down that rabbit hole if you want, Dave, and why they're trying to prevent people from eating eggs and why all of a sudden uh, these chicken production factories and egg producing factories are burning to the ground, why egg prices are doubling. There's a whole 
consistent, coherent theme that goes through these stories if you really want to get into the get into the issue. I think uh, I would love to do that in one of our shows because I think I, I, I would love to just kind of hash it out and let our audience appreciate that. Um, but I, I want to go back to a phrase because I had to look at it twice in our notes here. And uh, we were talking about with that knee injury, injury and recovery, but you used the word mitigation. And that's not prevention for our, right. our audience. Just kind of touch on that. Well, anyone who speaks of injury prevention is, you know, and, and again, not everyone has a nefarious motive. I think it is a lack of um, consistency with language. You know, I, I try to be very consistent with the words I use because words mean things. I mean, that sounds like a, a Yogi Berraism. But, you know, to say injury prevention is completely different than injury mitigation. You cannot prevent injuries. It goes back to the discussion I think we brought up last week or last show. I was on a panel discussion where football guys were trying to tell you there's a safe way to tackle. And the NFL and the youth football were telling you that you could safely tackle. And my position is there is no way to safely tackle. There's too many things that can go wrong. You can tackle properly. There's a difference between safely and properly. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here with mitigation versus prevention. You're not going to prevent injuries. You can't. When you have people running around in free space, think about the chaos of the NBA and college basketball where you have these massive men and women running around in close spaces and jumping and running and landing. Someone's going to get hurt. All the injury prevention work in the world is not going to prevent any injury in that space. And look at UConn. Women had to actually uh, postpone a game this year because yeah. they didn't have enough healthy athletes. That's another story we could get into. But I'd like to touch that a little bit. I know we've, we've, it's, it's, it's jumped in and out of a few shows we've done. What, what do you think that issue is? Because I, I watched that happen, the cancellation of a game because you need to have more than six, I think it was. Yeah. And they've had two really big-time stars. I'm guessing those injuries came with them. Right. And then whatever's happening at the college. Uh, well, I mean, that, but that's all. So we have a combination of factors. We have these. Let's talk about the women's basketball as young women. And you could go on, go on Instagram and watch what's being accepted as proper training for young girls who are, you know, just hitting their peaks in whether it's you know 12 13 14 and above watch how they're teaching these girls and young women how to jump and land and what they're doing with weights and improper technique and it's not being addressed those knee injuries that are occurring in high school and college are starting when these girls are in youth sports middle school sports and it's the constant pounding and it's the constant improper technique that's being reinforced, so their movement patterns are unsound, and now they're overworking, overtraining, and something's going to go. And we know structurally women are different and have a higher likelihood of tearing their ACL. So these strength coaches, male and female alike, are doing things that are preparing their injuries not to be healthy, but to be injured. Yeah, some of it has to deal with you. You've gone into great depth about it. You don't need to do it on, on the show today but the different levels of training. And I had put a post, a comment on a post, a young girl jumping off of a box, landing, 
and then doing the same, holding a weight. And when they landed, the foot that hit the ground, that knee, I call it wiggled, but it's called the frontal plane, so left to right. So if you look down at your knee, if you're sitting in a chair with your foot on the ground and you move your knee to the right and to the left, that's the frontal plane. What happens with these these girls, women, they land their knee when it hits the ground, you're getting a lot of frontal plane lack of control, which means there's a lot of wiggle there. That's an informal, non-technical term. And then not only are they doing it with body weight, but then they're loading that movement and you're getting more force and that same lack of control. So my point was to this person who posted it, doesn't that frontal plane lack of control concern you? And the answer was, well, you don't understand. This is an elite level volleyball player and they do this all the time. So his, it was a male, their response for the validity of that was, well, they play all the time like that. So it's okay. What, what false confidence are they putting into a kid when they do that? That you're, well, first of all, if you're calling it injury prevention right off the bat, that's that's a that's a lie because you're not going to prevent any injury and there is no attempt to correct that flaw which is one of the major reasons you're going to get you could get an injury and, and that's becoming viral we, we know how the the internet works with youtube and instagram where people they lack self-reliance so they see something and they just follow it blindly and our, our baseball industry is getting attacked you know jeff fry we know goes after that. And I want to encourage you to continue to do that because I've seen firsthand what you do with young athletes. And we're talking basketball now. You just had a young lady that you're working or worked closely with prior to her um, departure to Florida, but just got a nice big offer from Syracuse the other day. And a lot of it had to do with the stability and the strength they saw with her mentally. But they also saw a kid that, as they talked about, runs properly uh, moves properly and looks like she knock on wood is a type of kid that's injury f- could be injury free. Now nobody's injury free, but you know we want to minimize it. And I, I give you a lot of credit for that for giving her that foundation when she worked with you. Well, that's good. Thank you. And you know you have some athletes, some kids get it, whether they're kids or whether they're adults. I'm very fortunate to work with a couple of the top players in the lacrosse space. The, probably the guy who's considered the best player in the world is a client of mine. And um, he bought in right off the bat and knew there were things that he couldn't do. And there were things he wanted to do. And I just made suggestions and he listened. So I'm, I'm an always, no matter what mode I'm in, Dave, I'm an assistant coach. You know, even if I were to be the head strength coach somewhere, I'm an assistant coach to the football coach, to the soccer coach, to the tennis coach. I am working for them. I'm always the assistant to the athletes. I am not the center of it. We have a great group of coaches that I know uh, that I can follow on Instagram. I recommend one I'll give you today is Steve Magnus, M-A-G-N-E-S-S. He is a track back. He has a track background, but he does a lot of work on high performance and motivation and uh, that would be a great account uh, to follow. And <clears throat> I lost my train of thought right there for a second. Sorry about that. I got off on a tangent. No, but, we were, you were talking about lacrosse and you were talking about the. Oh, and so, yeah. So he, so he, 
so the, the ability of these athletes to take direction, and he had a post today about these programs need to be athlete-centered and, and, and assisted by the coach, not coach-centered, where it's all about what I can do for you. It's basically got to be what the athlete needs, and it's our job to help them along that line do what they need to do. So how do you foster that communication? That's that's a triangle right there. You got yourself, you have a, a coach of a sport, and you have an athlete. And we talk on the shows about, especially with pitching, we just you know, had our show with uh, with Mark Wiley and Will George, how pitchers have to learn how to start owning their arm. They, ha- they own their shoulder. They decide how much lay long toss, how far, how many reps, how many innings, not necessarily a formula or even a, even a pitching coach sometimes. Um, how do you foster that triangle? Well, you have to have a starting point. I'm going to cough. <coughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. I have winter allergies, and um, I, I apologize for that. That's all right. Well, I have a starting point, Dave, and I do evaluations. So when I get, especially when I get a high-level athlete, I video them doing specific drills that relate to how they sprint and how they uh, perform agility. And then I just show them what the area is that they need to work on. And one of the things we've talked about is your heel should not hit the ground at the same time as the front of your foot when you're running or jumping or cutting. And once they see that, and we could explain why that happens, and I have a plan for how to fix it, the good athletes get it. And I've been very fortunate, maybe it's because I do a decent job of communicating that, of having my athletes follow and not do the things that are going to continue to build that condition where the foot is flat and that comes from heavy lifting. I could We could do a 10-week show on that, Dave. When that foot is flat and you're in what's called deep dorsiflexion, imagine uh, a person with a bar on their back squatting or at the bottom of a deadlift. That's called deep dorsiflexion. All that time in that position ruins your foot for sprinting and doing things you need to do that are athletic. So that's, that's the technique that they'll teach kids to squat and the heavy squat is big now. And, you know, we see it all the time, although you don't, you don't believe in that, right? You don't agree with the heavy squat. I don't. Yeah. I I wouldn't back squat anybody. Maybe if you want to make the case, there are some, but I'm not going to do it to the point where you're seeing guys squat 650 pounds. You know, there was a video of miles Garrett. I just saw who's the DN for the Browns. The fact that he can, Squat 650 pounds doesn't mean that he should, and it certainly doesn't mean that it's helping him. We could talk about Mike Trout. Mike Trout has had a a series of back injuries. There's a lot of video of him online of him doing nonsensical exercises, one of which is flipping a heavy truck tire with dumbbells in it. There's nothing that a baseball player needs to do that that is going to be good for you. It's just putting miles on your body exponentially instead of doing things that are going to keep you healthy and moving better. Why do people have them do that? So what's their, in their mind, what's the rationale? Uh, I think they get seduced by the capabilities of these people. I think whether it's a, it doesn't matter the sport when you see an athlete who competes and especially excels at the highest level, they are freaks. They're not like the rest of us. And the responsible coach needs to dial back their excitement that they could get these, uh, 
people to do all these crazy things. Is it good for you or not? I mean, that's that's the way I look at it. You know, you look at a great singer, they shouldn't be running around all day belting out songs at the top of their lungs. They protect their voice. They should anyway. And the ones that do that can sing late in their life without losing their capability. It's the same thing here. Just because an athlete can run and jump and do all these crazy things doesn't mean they have to do that 24/7 and do it constantly in their training. Yeah, and do things that don't 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 and do things that aren't related to their task. That's a good point. Now, how does that transfer over to my, my son Tanner and I are watching all the trades go on today. We're taping on on Thursday trade deadline for the NBA. Some guys that got moved, they have this load management now in the NBA. Does that that's different than load management? What you're talking about, correct? Well, I think there. I think you got into the situation of load management because they've been ruined doing the stuff that is the off-court stuff. I mean, so basketball, this- basketball is, you know, something that people do and can do all the time, and generations past did it without the ability to have the high-level recovery and all the other science we have now, the sports right. science that we have that allows these athletes to recover. So this load management to me is nonsense. I think it's uh, a, an indictment of how the the athletes are trained. And I did see uh, Stan Van Gundy had come out hard against it. And I believe it was Kevin Durant. It was a kind of a humorous thing on social media. He didn't realize Kevin Durant was supporting him. And that was kind of like a laugh. But it was good to see that a coach who's been around now a couple of generations realizes what they're doing to prepare these athletes is not preparing them properly. Yeah, that, that tree that uh, Van Gundy and Tom Thibodeau is another one. They have a reputation for being anti-load management, and I, I, I love to have that discussion with someone in that tree because I think their point would be similar to yours that they're treating the symptom, not the problem. And the problem isn't they need to play less; they need to train more, more intelligently. Yeah, if you have, I believe everybody has a certain amount of high-level performance in them. How you measure that is a mystery. But what I would certainly say is when you're one of these high-performance athletes, you don't want to leave too much of that out on the the training field. You want to have that be burned up in your competition. Right. I've heard from one of the things you always hear, and Dave, you were in baseball, you would know, training camp was used to get into shape. Now players take two weeks or so off from the season, and then they get in shape for the training camp, and then they never stop. Their bodies never get rested and recovered, and that's a big problem, in my opinion. Yeah. Now um, I know we're getting we're getting close to our our time, but I wanted to ask you this question: and how deep you go into it? I you know, I don't want to uh, infringe on the relationship that you have, but in training in training the and I won't even use his name, the high level lacrosse player that you train, uh, probably one of the best. Uh, maybe the, uh, without a doubt, the best in the business with what he does. What are some strong messages that you give to him? Because he's at the top of his game, tremendous at what he does uh, in terms of his skill, obviously in tremendous shape. What are messages that you kind of feed to him, whether it's nutrition or mental, or as we talked today about training? With with Tom, it's been, he has to treat himself a little more carefully with what he does when he's not competing and working out. So he coaches a lot and he's on his feet a lot and he's a great coach. He works with young athletes 
and really is one of the best coaches I've ever seen on top of being a phenomenal player and a great guy. He is a tremendous coach and has helped my kids when he didn't have to and has does a great job with the kids that are in his clinics that he works on. And he does this a because he likes it and B because I'm sure it's, it's a moneymaker, but he does it too much and he's on his feet too much. And I, jokingly said to him one day, I said, you know, you have to be you a little more and play the role of the superstar. You can't be running around for four hours on a Monday night when you've had a week of practice and travel and he plays indoor lacrosse, which if no one's familiar with indoor lacrosse, it's really like hockey as far as the contact goes. It's a a really rough game. They have the sticks they use beyond just shooting and passing the ball. So he needs to take care of himself off off training and not train too much. And that's one of the big things he's done. He's remained healthy. He plays full-time. He plays field lacrosse. He plays box lacrosse. And some of those seasons overlap. And he's been injury-free since we've been together. No, we'll knock on wood. I think that's obviously a byproduct of your influence and his attention to detail and making himself the center of what you guys are doing. I love that. Sal, how, so how, can, how can everybody find you? That's our listeners. On Twitter, uh, I am at Sal Marinello. On Instagram, I am Coach Sal's Playmakers. You can get a real good idea for how I train all my athletes, but you can kind of see my off-the-beaten-path methods. And I have a substack, Coach Sal M. Substack. So that's the best way. I'm, I've been involved with trying to get my website up and going. It's been a never-ending process here hopefully by the spring i'll have something worth sharing with everybody wix.com it's the easiest one going if you're yeah struggling. i have it but it's a matter of making it look right and gotcha. you know perfectionist and no, i love it uh well this is real voices of game productions the hot corner with coach sal we're in episode 118 sal great show again today you always give our audience a ton of information but leave them wanting for a little bit more so we'll, we'll pick up next week i do want to pick up with that egg discussion at some point in time, because I think that's important. It's very pertinent to what we're going through in and outside of sports right now. And I think, yeah. And I think we have to pick up with the injury and and the injury issue and how that again goes back to the competency and confidence issue. Okay. No, I'm all, all about that. But thanks again, audience continue to support the hot corner with coach Sal and real voices of game production, 11,500 subscribers. We're so excited that you support us. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, please download, listen, like, and subscribe. That little bit of attention goes a long way with keeping us rolling here. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook now. I do a post every morning based on questions I'm getting. Hopefully you're enjoying those. Keep the questions coming. This is the Hot Corner with Coach Sal, Sal Marinello. Thanks, Sal, again. We appreciate you, buddy. Thanks, Dave. See you next week.